Today we are delighted to have the baptism of three children into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. But before we baptize the children, we must know what we are doing. What do we mean by baptism? What is baptism? Baptism is a visible sign of God's salvation in Jesus Christ. The water represents Christ's atonement, cleansing from sin. And the Holy Spirit bringing us into the newness of life. The one who is baptized enters God's covenant in the visible sign and receives God's covenant promise of grace. And the baptism's grace is made efficacious, it's working and takes effect by the power of the Holy Spirit conferred at baptism and received by faith. And this meaning and understanding of baptism is present in Titus chapter 3, verses 3 to 7. Now, the context is, of course, not baptism. You will not find the sacrament of baptism in this passage. The chapter is actually a message to Christians to say you should be gentle to everyone, no matter who they are. And the reason why you are to be gentle, because you were a wicked sinner yourself, and what you have become is only by the grace of God. And therefore, be gentle to everyone. But the message of baptism is present in this chapter because the gospel is the message of baptism. And in verse 5, we have the language of washings. And this is speaking of the invisible grace that is signified by the visible sign of baptism. So if you read commentaries on this chapter, Reformed commentators will say, yes, it's not speaking specifically about baptism, but with the content and the word washings, it's not the word for baptism here, it's just the word for washings, it teaches the invisible grace signified by the visible sign. And therefore, to have a deeper understanding of the message of baptism, we will consider one, baptism and cleansing. Two, baptism and God's salvation. And three, baptism and children. The sign of baptism is clearly water. And God has given us the sign of water because water cleanses from dirt, filth, and stain. 
children, if you're out playing and you get very muddy and all your clothes are, are full of dirt and mud, what do you do? You'll give your clothing to your parents and your parents will put your dirty clothing in the washer. And the water will wash and cleanse your clothing to be made new. And so baptism has the sign of water so that we understand we all need washing. We all need cleansing. And we need cleansing and washing not because of dirt in our clothing, because of the sin in our souls and the sin in our lives. And in verse 3, the Apostle Paul gives numerous examples of sin in mankind. He is saying, you Christian, this is who you were. But it's also teaching what is mankind by nature. And look at the sins of mankind and the need of washing. For we ourselves also were sometimes foolish. Now we understand the word foolish sometimes by someone who's stupid or an idiot or ignorant. That's not the biblical word for foolish. You can be a very intelligent, informed person and still be a fool. A fool in the Bible is someone, whether they're intelligent or not intelligent, refuse to fear God and live for Him. Webster's Dictionary has a wonderful definition of a fool. Webster's Dictionary says this, In Scripture, fool is often used for a wicked or depraved person, one who acts contrary to sound wisdom in his moral deportment. One who follows his own inclinations, who prefers trifling and temporary pleasures to the service of God and eternal happiness. That's a fool. And man is naturally a fool because they will not fear God. Proverbs chapter 1 verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. To fear here is not a slavish fear, like a slave is terrified of a master and wants nothing to do with him and therefore in terror obeys. That's not what we're speaking about here. Fear in the Bible is the fear of a child towards their father. The child loves their father. The child respects and honours their father and therefore dreads to offend them and delights to obey them. A natural man does not fear God. You may accept God, you may say, I'm not an atheist, but I believe in a God, or even the God of the Bible, but there is no fear in your heart, and therefore you live your life as you please. Psalm 14, 
The fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. That's man. Whether atheists, agnostics, secularists, professing Christians, Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists, what have you, we will not fear the true God and therefore we rebel against him. And this leads to disobedience, sometimes foolish, disobedient. God has the right to your obedience. We have parents in this room and grandparents. And we have children. And when children are growing up, do we not demand the right to listen to us and to obey us? Of course we do. That's because we have made them. We are their father, their mother. We have given our lives to protect them and provide for them, to love them and give them everything that's good for their health and intellectual well-being and spiritual well-being. And therefore, as parents, we have the right to their obedience. God's created man. He's given us life, movement, and being. He's given us family and friends, food, sustenance, clothing, skills, talents, jobs, health. He's given us everything. And therefore, he's the right to expect obedience. But because of our sin, we will not obey. What is sin? 1 John 3, 4, sin is the transgression of the law. And when you think of the law of God, where do you begin? Well, Jesus Christ comes and he says in Mark chapter 12, this is the summary of the law. To love God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. And secondly, to love your neighbor as yourself. And in sin, we will not do that. We will not love God with all our heart, soul, and mind and strength. Not second, not third, not fourth. We are to love all our hearts. Everything comes second to God. Our children are second to God. Our wives and our husbands are second to God. Anything else but absolute supreme devotion to God is sin. God says, thou should have no other gods before me. And our hearts and our love are for the idols of this world. Ourselves, we love ourselves more than God. We love our spouses more than God. We love our children more than God. We love our homes more than God. We love our cars more than God. We love our vacations more than God. We sin against God in disobedience. We are dirty and filthy in our disobedience. And even those who profess to believe in God In Mark chapter 7, you have the Pharisees. And Jesus says they honor God with their mouths, but their hearts are far from him. Is that you? You're religious. 
you get the census form through the door. I'm not a Muslim. I'm not a Buddhist. I'm not an atheist. Tick, Christian. But it's nominalism. In name only. Maybe you go to church for a baptism here and there. Maybe you go to church for Christmas and Easter or when you're visiting your family. So with your lips, you have some sort of profession, but your hearts are far from God. Well, God says in 1 Samuel, man judges by the outward appearance, but God judges the heart. And when we do not love God with all our heart, soul, mind and strength, he sees the sin of disobedience. And the third sin Paul mentions is deceived. The word here means to be led astray, to wander away from God. Isaiah 53 verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way. That's our sin. We don't want to do things God's way. We, don't, we want to do things our way. What's the number one song played at funerals in the United States of America? Frank Sinatra's My Way. Fact. Look it up. And that is the perfect song for natural man. Because we don't want God to be the God of our lives. We don't want God's law to be our lives' law. We don't want to live our lives according to the Bible. We want it our way. We want to live our lives and our thoughts and our sex lives and our money and everything my way. Who is God to determine what I do? Who is the Bible to tell me what is right and wrong? I will choose my way. That's our sin. And the word here means deceived. We wander away from God and we're deceived. Because that's sin. Hebrews 3.13, the deceitfulness of sin. We think we're actually good and we're kind. And if God was to come, he will let us into heaven. We've deceived ourselves. God will judge according to his standards. And when we have went away from God and do things our way, he will cast us into hell. The next sin Paul mentions, serving divers' lusts and pleasures. Serving has the language of a slave in bondage to the master. Lusts are the inward desires, the eager yearnings, cravings, and longings within. Pleasures speak about the things that our flesh enjoys and is gratified with. This is the sin of man. We're in bondage to our cravings. We're in bondage to our longings. We're in bondage 
to please the flesh. For some it might be money. 1 Timothy 6. The love of money is the root of all evil. We want wealth. We want status. We want materialism. We want this, that, and the other. Our flesh, our desires, and our hearts are longing for it, and we serve it and obey it. For other people, it's sex. Sexual desires fill you. And therefore, there's fornication, adultery, sexual perversion, pornography, and all manner of things to please and gratify the longing of the flesh. Or for some people, it's food. In Philippians chapter 3, it speaks of the wicked whose God is their belly. It's gluttony where you don't have moderation and temperance, which is good, but you're out of control in your eating. Or, we don't really talk about that, do we? But it's a sin. Gluttony is a sin. Or maybe it's not the amount of food, but the luxuriousness of it. And therefore, all your money is spent on luxurious food, which you do not need, and that's your idol, your craving and your longing, and you're serving the master of your lusts and pleasures. Or is it the things of the world? 1 John 2. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Whatever you feel like, you go after it. That's what Paul's saying. And it's sin. The next sin he mentions is living in malice and envy. Malice is depravity, wickedness, acts of evil. If you read Romans chapter 1 or Galatians 5, the works of the flesh... Anger, contention, strife, disobedience to parents, lying, breaking your oaths and vows and covenants, or envy. That passion, that zeal, that jealousy because of what someone else has. They have the reputation, they have the job, they have the wife, they have the husband, they have the car, they have this, that and the other and therefore you're green and filled with envy. And then the last sins he mentions, hateful and hating one another. Hateful is just what it says in English, full of hate. You know that spiteful person. Just always negative, always critical. Hasn't a good word to say about anyone. It's always bringing out someone's weaknesses and faults. Just a hateful person. Hating other people. Showing hatred. Whether it's with the tongue, gossip and slander. Whether it's politicians or people in your community or family members, or people in the workplace. Or hatred is the failing to show love. Love, 1 Corinthians 13 says, is long-suffering. It's kind. It does not accuse. It 
bears all things. It rejoices in all things. It believes all things. Love covers a multitude of sins and you fail to do these things. It is hateful and hating others. And these are only a sample of sins in the Bible. But whatever sin is yours, or to what degree any of these are yours, it shows the fact we are all sinful, filthy, and dirty, and we need to be washed and made clean. I, standing here as a minister of God by nature, am a filthy, dirty sinner, and I need to be washed clean too. Isaiah chapter 64 says, Our righteousnesses, our good works, are as filthy rags, and we are all as an unclean thing. This is you, my dear friend. This is me. This is every man, woman, and child in every country and every age. We need to be cleansed and washed because of the stain of our sins. Do you know this? Do you recognize this? Are you convicted by this truth? And we are baptizing our children because the children are filthy, dirty sinners too. We don't like to say that, do we? They're innocent. They're pure. I'm a father as well. I'm not saying that as someone who doesn't have a child and therefore spouting things. I'm telling the truth according to the Bible. Romans 5.12 As Adam sinned, we all sinned in Adam. Psalm 51 verse 5 David the king, he says, I was born in sin. I was shapen in iniquity. As soon as I was conceived in my mother's womb, I was filled with sin. Ephesians chapter 2 speaks of our nature as being born dead in trespasses and sins. There's a well-known story out there by um, uh, speaking of a man called John Gersner, who was a well-known Christian preacher, theologian from Pittsburgh. And he would travel to different churches and be invited to preach. Well, one day he was invited to a particular church and they said, we're baptizing uh, children and would like you to preach and to baptize the children. It was an absolute joy and privilege for him. And the elders came to him before the worship service and says, Mr. Gerstner, we have a tradition in this church that during the worship service, just before the child's going to be baptized, we give the parents a white rose to symbolize their innocency and purity. And John Gerstner said, if the white rose symbolizes their innocency, then why do they need to be washed with water? And the elders could not answer. You see, we love our children, but they're sinners. And in the eyes of the Bible, They're born in sin, conceived in sin. Parents, did you teach your children to lie? Did you teach your children to disobey? 
Did you teach your children about unjust anger and to hit people and to be selfish? Did you teach your children all these things? I bet none of you taught them. But how is it all our children grow up and do them? As a tiger's nature is to eat meat, as a giraffe's nature is to eat vegetation, it is a human being's nature to sin. And as a child grows up, that sin nature will come out more and more and they'll grow up and manifest all these sins. And therefore, we all need washed. And the children who are being baptized today need washed because they are sinners. If these children were not sinners, we would not be baptizing them. But secondly... Baptism and God's salvation. Baptism does not just teach us that we need wash because of our sins. Baptism teaches us the water represents God's salvation. Look at verse 4. But after that, the kindness and love of God our Saviour towards man appeared. And then verse 5, not by our works of righteousness we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. What does it mean to be saved? The word saved simply means to be delivered from something. To be delivered from danger. Think of a nation where it's been invaded by a foreign army. And the military are everywhere and there's shootings and bombings and so on. That nation needs to be delivered. What do we need to be delivered from? We speak of salvation. What do we need to be saved from? And the biblical answer is this. We need to be saved from God's wrath. First, sorry, um, Matthew 3, 7. O generation of vipers, who have warned you to flee from the wrath to come? First Thessalonians 1, 12. Delivered from wrath. Revelation 6, 17. For the great day, the speaking of judgment, of his wrath is come. God's a judge and he's good and good holy. And when God sees sin, he must respond with wrath. And because we are sinners, he is wrathful upon sinners. And if you break the law, maybe you're stealing or you murder, what happens when you go before the law court? The judge who is good will pronounce guilty and send you to prison, and even the death penalty. Our God is good, and just, and holy. And that is why he's created a place called hell. Hell was not made up. Hell was not something Christians made up to scare people to believing in Jesus. Hell is created by God for his glory, to show how much sin is sin and how just he is, and sin must be punished. But here's the good news. Here's the wonderful news. 
God saves us from his wrath. He saves us from hell. And he saves us in Jesus Christ. It says here in verse 4 that God appeared unto men. And in verse 6, shedding and the abundance through Jesus Christ. God sent Jesus Christ to save us from our sins. Now, why would he do that? Why would someone go to a prison full of guilty, condemned criminals and say, my son will pay the rest of your sentence and everyone can go free? You wouldn't do that, would you? Would you give your son or your daughter so that rapists and murderers and uh, sinners and criminals of all kinds can be let free. But I tell you who does? God. And why would God do such a thing? Because of who he is. Who is he? Verse 4. Kindness of God. God's excellency of goodness towards other people who don't deserve it. The love of God towards man. The Greek word there is philanthropy. We know what a philanthropist is, don't we? Someone who's rich and out of a love for man gives his riches to help them. Whether it was Andrew Carnegie in Pittsburgh giving all his riches to help people or modern day people who are full of money and wealth and simply because they love man, they give their finances to help other men. God's the greatest philanthropist in this entire existence. Out of his love for mankind, he sent Jesus Christ to save us. And it's nothing to do with what we do. Verse 5 speaks of by his mercy he saved us. In verse 7 it says we're justified by his grace. Mercy means pity towards undeserving sinners. Grace means God doing good for undeserving sinners. Salvation has nothing to do with us. People think that you can be saved by what you do. If you ask a Muslim, how do you get to heaven? I need to keep the, the, the five pillars. I need to say the shahada. I need to do good works. If you ask the Jew, how do you get to heaven? I need to keep the law. I need to do works of righteousness. If you ask the natural man, how do you get to heaven? Hopefully my good outweighs my bad. If you ask someone in the Roman Catholic Church, how do I get to heaven if I do enough good works? But what does the Bible say? Verse 5, not by works of righteousness we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. You cannot have grace and works. It's an oxymoron. Romans chapter 11, verse 6. If by grace, then it is no more of works. Otherwise, grace, if it be of works, then it is no more grace. Grace is when you work nothing and God provides everything and gives you it as a free gift. 
That's salvation. And what God did was send his son Jesus Christ. Where we have sinned against God's law, he must perfectly keep and obey God's law. Whereas we deserve his wrath, on the cross, Jesus Christ received God's wrath against sin. And therefore, 1 John chapter 1, the blood of Christ cleanses from every sin. Whether your sin is foolishness, disobedience, deception, serving lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one of another, whatever your sin it is, whatever your shame is, Jesus Christ's blood washes and cleanses from all your sins. It says in verse 7, justified by his grace. That does not mean he makes you righteous, but he declares you as righteous. Though you're a sinner, he says, you are righteous in my sight because of what Christ has done. That's the good news. Romans chapter 4, verse 5. To him that does not work but believes on him that justifies the ungodly. His faith is counted for righteousness. Isn't that beautiful? If you try to work your salvation, you're not saved and you go to hell because your works are filled with sin. But if you lay aside and you renounce all your works, and you believe in Jesus Christ alone, not believe in Jesus Christ and baptism, not believe in Jesus Christ and what I do, but I believe on Jesus Christ alone, God says you're righteous in my sight and you are cleansed from all your sins. And when he cleanses us from our sins, he gives us a new life. Verse 5 speaks of the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. Regeneration is the word re, like rewind, again, new. Generation means to beget, born, birth. In Jesus Christ, we are washed inside so that we're born again. That means the Holy Spirit enters our hearts takes away the defilement of sin, puts in spiritual life into our souls and causes us, moves us, enables us to walk in the newness of life. Because when you're in Christ Jesus, 2 Corinthians 5, new creation. The old life has gone away and all things have become new. There's new thinking now as you're transformed by the renewing of your mind. There's a new heart and a new life that seeks to live not for self or sin anymore, but to live for God in Jesus Christ. You love the Bible and you obey the Bible. You love God's worship and you come every Lord's Day to worship God your Saviour. You love the Sabbath and therefore you refrain from lawful works and recreations to rest in Him the whole day. You love God's people and so you delight in their company. 
You love God and therefore you love man and you do good and kindness to others as you love your neighbour. And when you are a Christian, you are assured of heaven. Verse 7, that being justified by his grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Heir is the language of a son receiving the inheritance of a father. And when we come to Jesus Christ, we are made sons of God. We don't have to be afraid of God. We don't have to be scared. We can go directly to God in the name of Jesus. We don't need anyone else. We don't need any other mediators. We need only Jesus Christ. And that's why we can pray, Our Father which art in heaven. And being sons of God, everyone who believes in Christ is guaranteed heaven. Guaranteed. Nothing with our works, all the work of Christ. So a believer, if they were to die today, maybe you're travelling on the road and out of nowhere, bang, a car hits you and you die today. For the believer, they say with Paul in Philippians 1, for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. Because I know whom I have believed and I am persuaded that God will keep me and therefore I know I'm going straight to glory. And this is only someone who has faith in Christ. And baptism represents and symbolizes this entire salvation, God's love, God's grace, God sending Christ, the blood of Christ cleansing from every sin, regeneration and renewal, justified by his grace and heirs of eternal life, heaven. But my friend, how do you receive God's salvation? It's not the waters of baptism. The waters of baptism are signs pointing to Christ. If you were hungry and you wanted food and you saw the sign of a restaurant, if you go under the sign of that restaurant and point to the sign of that restaurant, you're going to remain hungry. That sign's there only what? Pointing you to the restaurant. You need to go to the restaurant to eat food. Same with baptism. If you're looking for the waters of baptism to save you, justify you, you receive nothing but water because the water is water and water cannot save your soul. But the water is a sign, a symbol pointing to Jesus Christ who cleanses from every sin. And as we receive the baptism today, it's speaking to everyone to look to the one the water is pointing to. Jesus Christ. And so if you have faith in Jesus Christ, you shall be saved by the love of God. You shall be cleansed from all your sins. You will be justified right here, right now. And you will be assured and guaranteed of heaven for Christ's sake. But thirdly, baptism and children. Why are we baptizing our children? 
I'm not going to give you a defense of infant baptism. I've preached on that before and you can't preach at every baptism sermon. We're baptizing our children because our children are sinners. If our children were to die, they deserve hell. That's when you really know the sinfulness of sin. If my children, one in the womb, one outside of the womb, if they were to die, they deserve hell. They're children of Adam, they have the guilt of Adam, and they have the pollution of Adam. And the daughter in the womb of my wife and the son, whom I love, deserve hell. And these three children are sinners too. And they deserve hell. But the good news is, God saves sinners. And by being baptised, God is saying, I promise to save you in Jesus Christ, but you must receive my promise of salvation by faith. In the Old Testament, what did circumcision stand for? Romans 4.11 He received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith. Circumcision symbolizes righteousness by faith. Who were to receive this sign of faith? Genesis 17, eight-day-old infants. Because God was saying, through circumcision, there is the sign pointing you to the Messiah who will be your righteousness. For the Old Testament, the outward sign of circumcision was not enough. There must be an inward circumcision. Deuteronomy 30 verse 6. And the Lord thy God will circumcise thine heart and the heart of thy seed, children, to love the Lord thy God. So they must receive the grace of God. And how is this received? By faith. Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. And so if someone was circumcised in the Old Testament, it doesn't mean they were united to Christ or saved or regenerated or justified. It was the promise of the good news to be received by faith. Same with baptism. Baptism, as we've already seen, is the symbol of Jesus Christ's salvation. Water alone will not wash anyone's soul. There must be an inward washing of regeneration by the Holy Spirit. And all the grace promised in baptism and conferred in baptism is only efficacious when the Spirit works faith into the soul of the recipient. Mark 16, 16. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. Faith is essential. The thief on the cross was not baptized, but he was saved because he believed on Christ. Simon Magus in Acts chapter 8 was baptized, but he was not saved because he did not have faith in Jesus Christ. And so our children are receiving the promise of salvation in Jesus Christ and they receive Only at faith.
We have hope because God has brought these children into the covenant home and they're to be taught the gospel and prayed for and educated in the things of God. And God keeps his covenant to a thousand generations, Psalm 105. And it is the parent's duty to pray for and educate and point the children to Christ. It is the church's responsibility to pray for and point these children to Jesus Christ. And by the grace of God, when a child, whether they're young or teenagers or 80 years old, if they renounce their righteousness, if they repent of their sins, if they trust in Jesus Christ alone, they'll be washed in the soul. The blood of Christ will cleanse from every sin. They'll be saved by the love of God in Christ and they will be justified by his grace and they will be inheritors of eternal life. Let us pray.